Uh, can we make a start? Uh, let me uh, welcome you all here to what is the fourth uh, pace right uh, debate in international political economy. Um, I'm Richard Higgins, and I'm going to chair the session tonight. I think it's fair to say that the reason these things exist is several years ago, Matt Watson and I wrote this somewhat not entirely complimentary review of Jerry Cohen's study of transatlantic IPE. And Jerry very graciously said he'd like to come to Warwick and debate us. So that was the first uh, right debate. Since then, we've had uh, several others uh, on interesting topics and with interesting speakers that many of you will know, people like Mark Blythe and uh, uh, Vivian Schmidt and Colin Hay. So we like to think that this is a, a rather nice annual event uh, in international political economy here at Warwick. Uh, so I'm very pleased tonight uh, to introduce two distinguished academics and two very old friends of mine. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how long Cerny and I have known each other because uh, we just embarrass ourselves. Uh, but Phil uh, is one of the... Uh, senior scholars of international political economy in the world. Um, been doing this for a long time now. And uh, in actual fact, I think the first ISA we were ever at together was about 1982 or something like that. So gives you a bit of an idea. Uh, and Phil is going to talk, uh, I should say that Phil's had a distinguished career. He's been uh, professor at Leeds, professor at Manchester, uh, worked at York for a long time uh, and uh, has just recently finished as professor at Rutgers University uh, in the United States and he's now emeritus professor at uh, both Rutgers and Manchester. Uh, very widely published and uh, his latest book is called Rethinking World Politics. Um, it's got one of Phil's shorter titles, actually, uh, A Theory of Transnational Neo-Pluralism. Um, but I think it's fair to say that it is very much the, the product of 20, 25 years of thinking around these kinds of issues. So clearly a, a substantial tone. Uh, and Phil is going to uh, talk to us for about 30 minutes. I'm then going to invite... Uh, my colleague here at Warwick, Professor Janot Scholter, uh, who uh, succeeded me as director of the Centre for Study of Globalisation and Regionalisation, and over the last two or three years has been working uh, on a big Ford Foundation project called Building Global Democracy. Uh, and many of you, or all of you, I suspect, will know um, Janot's work on global civil society. Uh, and his uh, early major book on globalization. So we have two really interesting scholars with us uh, tonight. And uh, Janot is going to uh, respond to Phil for about 20 minutes afterwards, and then that will give us um, plenty of time for question and comment from the, uh, from the floor. So let me shut up and invite Phil to uh, come and talk to us about rethinking world politics. Thanks very much, Richard. 
Well, basically, the main starting point, I think, for most of you, and to some extent for me, by the way, this isn't just international political economy. This is world politics, and what, in my view, used to be called or shouldn't be called international relations. Um, but I think the starting point is a fairly obvious one for everybody, which is uh, the weakness of the concept of different levels of analysis be between political science and international relations. The notion that politics is fundamentally different at the international level from the domestic level. And that this difference in both classical realists and in very different ways, classical realists and neo-realist theory is because of the institutional supremacy since, well, people usually say sometime in the 17th century, of the state and its co combination with the social base development of the modern nation. So we have a nation state. And that the international system is about the relationship between nation states and that that's somehow fundamentally different from what goes on domestically. What goes on domestically is that you have a political system in which, at least in more developed political systems, especially democratic systems, you have a number of competing interest groups. You possibly, if it's a democratic system, you have parties and elections. You have politics around um, competing programs of you know how to deal with social problems and that sort. Sometimes in an authoritarian context, sometimes in a democratic context. Whereas in international relations, you have states that are concerned almost entirely with power in terms of what the Germans have called realpolitik. That's where the phrase realism comes from. Um, and so what I'm going to start with is by saying what I think are the problems of that kind of approach. The first is quite simply, that the state has always been, in my view anyway, an unfinished political project. It was a political project that emerged out of the decline of feudalism, which was a much more complex, uh, multi-layered system of what people have com called uh, competing institutions with overlapping jurisdictions and a you know, much more complex social base much more fluid social base in some ways, but also people much more tied to the land in Europe. And out of the collapse of feudalism came, if you read Hendrik Spreut's The Sovereign State and its competitors in particular, uh, the rise of France as a centralized nation state with a centralized um, bureaucracy in terms of taxation and in terms of uh, command structure of the military kind. And that this in turn, uh, basically uh, kicked off a process of imitation where Prussians and others uh, attempted to compete for land within this limited space called Europe. And ultimately, you know, these, these competing monarchies uh, had, you know, had to deal with uh, plans for a European empire, most recently, say, Napoleon and Hitler, um, and they managed to stymie those attempts at developing a European empire and ended up competing with each other. They also found that they couldn't maintain this, this race within Europe without expanding abroad, um, in particular the development of um, British and French imperialism and later other competing imperialisms uh, that spread 
this European system around the world, although it wasn't really in some ways a purely nation-state system, it was an empire-state system as well. And that creates complications, I think, which are not necessarily taken, taken account of fully in realist theory. But during all this time, you also have various patterns of international trade that continue, despite mercantilism, which uh, you know, comes along as being the nation states or the, the emerging nation states' first response uh, to uh, the development of this, of this state system. And you also have international finance, um, which have certain national characteristics, but also other international characteristics. You also have migration, you have diasporas. You had what Joel Kupkin in his book Tribes in 1992 called Global Tribes, um, including a number of quasi-ethnic groups that spread across borders, uh, from the overseas Chinese to the Anglo-Saxons, following the Scottish Enlightenment through the British Empire and later to the United States and others. So you actually did have a much more complex system <coughs> than the image that you get of international relations or interstate relations uh, would suggest. You also had a process, however, of centralizing these nation states, as I say, partly in imitation with France, but I, I would say that the key phase of development of the nation state system really came in what I call the high nation state period of about 1850 to 1950, uh, whereby the state became, and this is where the international political economy side comes in, where the state became enmeshed with the development of second industrial revolution firms, large firms in areas like, well, originally the railroads, actually, but later on in terms of uh, the development of uh, steel industry, as distinct from the iron industry, which was much more spread around, um, much more fragmented, the steel industry was much more centralized. Uh, the development of um, the chemicals industry, which is particularly important, for example, in Germany, both steels and chemicals were particularly important in France, Germany, and Japan, and in the United States as well, which despite having uh, <coughs> a much broader internal market, still uh, at the end of the 19th century was dominated by a few large uh, industrial firms in these second industrial revolution areas. And this that's culminating in what many of you will have heard the, the term Fordism. Uh, Henry Ford opened the first Ford plant in River Rouge, Michigan in 1913, the biggest factory in the world with the longest production line, um, using mass production techniques to to produce millions of uh, Model T Fords, which led to the development of road systems, development of the oil industry, development of the rubber industry, the glass industry. It fitted in with the, with the rapid expansion of the steel industry. In other words, there was a huge modernization, which in the United States happened primarily in the private sector. Of course, in places like, first of all, Prussia and later Germany happened in the public sector. If you read about the, the uh, a comparison of what happened in Britain, which never really had a second industrial revolution, except possibly uh, in the 1930s and after, um, you see that uh, those countries which did not have the big kind of internal market the United States did, sought both to uh, consolidate their industrial bureaucracies, what you might call a government industry complex at home, or what, what Vladimir Ilyich Lenin called 
finance capital. And finance capital was the integration of big government, uh, big, big industry, big second industrial revolution industry, and big banks in order to bankroll these developments. Uh, Alfred Chandler Jr. called it the modern industrial enterprise, uh, but it was very much tied up with the development of the modern nation state. And I think you could actually look, I would say, at both the, fir the First World War and the Second World War, uh, and the industrialization of warfare at the same time, as bringing into, into being a system which culminated in the Second World War. Some would say maybe even culminated a bit later in the Cold War with its uh, threat of nuclear holocaust, in which more, or sorry, fewer and fewer but bigger nation states carrying out these sort of second industrial revolution uh, um, transformations uh, dominated the world. And that's when, in a sense, realist and neo-realist theory comes along. E. H. Carr, writing about this time, about the origins of uh, the Second World War in particular. Okay, so where do we go from here? Um, I would say that, first of all, that state had certain fragilities because you still had empire states, you still had international trade, you still had international finance, you had a lot of migration. Uh, the states were built as political projects, as I said right at the beginning. They were not finished items. Uh, at the same time, I think there was a kind of state overstretch developing. Not Paul Kennedy's imperial overstretch, all that's connected with it but a state overstretch. And that state overstretch really came into being in the 1950s and 1960s with the process of decolonization. Because in the 1950s and 1960s, once all these former colonial uh, areas became nation states and became admitted to the United Nations and eventually to some other uh, global governance institutions, um, that was in, in a sense saying, yes, the whole system is based on nation states and of course sovereign uh, sovereign being a sovereign state was crucial for membership in the United Nations the whole United Nations system was based around that at the same time these states were often uh, weak internally very often uh, dependent in a sort of neo-colonial sense um, seeking to find ways of dealing with clientelism and patronage and uh, tribal issues and things that, that uh, artificial borders that were very difficult. I and mean, we see we see all these problems today. I mean, Libya used to be Tripolitana and Serenica, and now we see the East and West exploding again. But we can see these kinds of changes throughout the developing world. Now, alongside this, in the 19 from the 1950s onwards, came a process which many people didn't recognize for a while, but which we now call globalization. And that means, of course, that uh, international trade expanded, that international finance in particular <coughs> expanded dramatically. Uh, after a period of migration slowing down in the early 20th century, we've had an explosion uh, in recent decades of international migration as well. Uh, we have diasporas all over the world. And of course, don't forget, we have the internet and um, you know, new information and communications technologies uh, that have uh, uh, revolutionized the way in which people become aware of what's happening around the world. 
And you also have something called the Third Industrial Revolution. The Third Industrial Revolution around what has been called flexibilization. In other words, for example, instead of big centralized steel industries, a number of people have written about this, instead of big centralized steel industries, um, which have become the core of what in the 1980s in the United States was called the Rust Bowl, where all these big factories were, were in a sense, aban abandoned or partly abandoned, and the emergence of small, flexible uh, steel mills that would make complex alloys in short runs for particular users. And these were the most profitable sections of the industry, often on greenfield sites. And this kind of flexibilization hasn't found its way through all industries. Of course, the opposite has happened in the aircraft, commercial aircraft industry, which is now dominated, of course, by Boeing and Airbus in a, in a kind of international duopoly. But even that has become a, a global international duopoly. And flexibilization of other industries has led to the emergence of new kinds of multinational corporations, uh, which are able to, to um, coordinate uh, of much more complex business relationships across borders. So what you have is an economic globalization. What you have is a social globalization. I don't know if globalization is the right word. I actually prefer the word transnationalization, because it's not just about something that's global. It's about something that, that, that involves a variety of different kinds of complex linkages across borders at a variety of different levels. But you also have, um, in a sense, a political institutional globalization, which is in, a, in the form of institutional pluralization. Now, it was, of course, the United States that originally was behind the setting up of most of the post-war uh, global governance institutions, international financial institutions, and that sort of thing. Uh, but you do have a much more complex superstructure, a superstructure which is not like a world government, of course. Uh, it's not, you know, you don't have a single political system there uh, similar to uh, domestic state. But what you do have is a set of different <coughs> forms, very often characterized as the phrase goes by forum shopping by different interest groups and different businesses. You have the emergence, as Jan Art knows very well, of some, I don't like the term global civil society because it does seem to me that global civil society sounds too nicey-nicey. And uh, Mary Calder agreed with me when I mentioned this to her a couple of years ago at a, at a uh, DEMOS meeting in New York. Um, that's why I choose neopluralism, because neopluralism says that it's the relationship between interest groups, um, interest groups, specific sectors of the bureaucracy and the political system, uh, and, um, you know, material, well, Theo Key in his classic on interest groups in 1953 distinguished between sectional groups and value groups. Well, we're still there, material sectional groups and value groups and specific sectors of the political system, but we have an international political system uh, or a transnational political system, a transnational public sector in global, global governance institutions. We have a transnationalizing private sector because you not only have firms and NGOs, but you have trade associations and all sorts of uh, market relationships which in some ways are extremely strong cross border. And you have what Anne-Marie Slaughter is called transgovernmental networks, following on from Kehan uh, and work in the 1970s, uh, where, for example, she argues that regulators in areas like finance 
uh, in different states talk to each other and understand each other in some ways better than they do with other sections of, within their own state, within their own government. So the ways of doing things and practices reverberate across governments and not just across private sectors. So you have what, in, in, in the book, in one of the chapters in the book, you have pentangles rather than triangles uh, with an internet, with domestic politics, domestic interest groups, um, domestic bureaucracies, international bureaucracies, <coughs> international pressure groups of various kinds, etc., etc., interacting with each other in different configurations, and those configurations depend on the issue area. Now, Andrew McFarland published a book called Neopluralism in, in 2004, uh, in which he said that neopluralism, stemming from the work of Charles Lindblom earlier, uh, especially deals with the fundamentally with the, with the relationships between um, these material interest groups or sectional interest groups, um, he calls them material groups, um, social movements or value groups, which is like civil society, and various uh, specialized bureaucratic and political <coughs> sectors, policy making processes, policy communities, you might say. But these policy communities obviously are now ones which operate in a transnational context and not just in a domestic context. But what makes, what differentiates, this it's just a, just a sort of broad system saying, broad uh, brushstroke kind of saying, you know, it's all, it's all in the melting pot, although to some extent it is, but it's saying that in each major issue area, whether finance, or not just trade, but particular kinds of trade, not just production, but particular sectors, like the difference between say, the, the, the more fragmented and modernized steel sector and the commercial aircraft sector, which is highly centralized across borders. Each sector, each issue area, has a somewhat different pattern of relationships between these different um, kinds of interest groups, different kinds of bureaucratic sectors, different elements of global governance. It has become much more multi-layered, become more, and to use a phrase which I was originally going to use in the title of the book, and it, but I decided not to, but it's in the title of my article in April 2009 in the Review of International Studies, Multinodal Politics. You've got a variety of different nodes, and because you don't have an international state, it's more like what Arthur Bentley in 1908 in his book, The Process of Government, which is the first real political sociology book which stripped off the, the tread towards um, the pluralist paradigm in American political science. He says it's a fluid system. He says, you know, um, the, as he said about in those days, the judges on the, the justices on the American Supreme Court can come up with a legal argument for any outcome that's being argued in front of them. What matters is what's the relationship between the different kinds of groups that are confining for the outcome of that judgment. So what we're talking about here is a fluid political process of bargaining, negotiating, interest articulation. But let me say it's not, you know, governance by networks, as some of the, uh, as some of the governance people suggest. It's not some, some sort of nicey-nicey, participatory, inclusive uh, system. It's a, it's, it's a dog eat dog system of interest groups and uh, governmental sectors and civil society sectors or whatever fighting each other for particular political, political outcomes. Now, in this sense, 
I would argue that despite the lack of a, of a world state, despite the lack of a central people uh, institutional system, what you have is something which is much more like what goes on in domestic politics. And this has become this emerging, it's not fully emerged, uh, it's emerging. I think you can also run it through, by the way, military issues as well, by saying that, uh, you know, war is fragment. You can't go in and just conquer a country anymore, and that, you know, that'd be the end of it. Um, you're always going to have uh, cross-border ethnic conflicts, civil wars, etc. that are going to be impossible to manage by nation-state systems. So I think warfare actually, the changing nature of warfare actually comes, in, comes into this as well. Not to mention the kind of ideological pluralization which, in, in my view, we can see in, in Egypt, Tunisia, and Libya, you know, sort of undermining the possibility of uh, sort of strong state dictatorial or authoritarian actors being able to actually control their populists in the way that perhaps we assume that they would be able to do in a proper state system context. So it's a, it's a fluid system, but I think if we look at it and have a research program, which is organized around identifying the crucial issue areas and the different patterns of interaction between these five or six uh, crucial uh, sets of actors, uh, we have a new way of thinking about world politics, which is fundamentally different from the traditional one of levels of analysis uh, of the state system um, with um, you know, realist characteristics. And I don't, I don't want to call it post-realist because I think it's actually far more than that. I think it's, it's a neo-pluralist context, and I think it's going to become more and more predominant as a paradigm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. And you were extremely parsimonious. So, yeah, why don't you... Did I have another five minutes? You did indeed, if you wanted. Yeah. Great. Um, thanks um, uh, for organizing. Thanks for introducing. Mostly thanks to, to, to Phil for giving the opportunity to have this discussion today. Um, I've, I don't go back to the early 80s with, with, with Phil, but, the, but to the mid-90s. Um, but I have to say, uh, Phil was one of the early people working on globalization as an analytical concept for the study of world politics um, and introducing ideas about plurilateralism, I think you called it then. Uh, now we've now you've introduced notions of multinodal. But at an early stage of my own thinking about globalization, this was a great encouragement and, and, and a great example. And I, Thank you very much for that. Um, so again, now I found myself going back and reading another one of your works, um, taking your ideas up to the present time on this work on rethinking world politics. Um, and again, found myself uh, very much in agreement with you on too many things. I'm supposed to lay out this debate here, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to start by saying I actually agree with a lot of what Phil is saying and doing. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll try and extract. Now I'll exaggerate some disagreements so we have a bit of debate afterwards. But, uh, but, uh, but, but first of all, I think it's to say that, that very much I continue to have much of that inspiration and got from this book also much of the inspiration that I've had earlier on from Phil's work. Um, one thing is to start with his, his very title, where, and he mentioned it also in his remarks, world politics. World politics, not international relations. Not global politics either. Um, and actually that's where I sit as well. I think uh, the notion of world politics it gives an openness for us to decide what that world is. And over different historical times, that world may take, may take different forms. 
Rodel had his Mediterranean world, and the world of indigenous peoples might have had a completely different construction. But world, for me, is a nice analytical category which is outside a particular historical context. Whereas international is very much about modernity, the nation state, a particular phase of history, and in a particular way that, it, that world politics happened at a particular time. And that's fine. But to make international relations an analytical category as opposed to a description of a particular situation, I think is a mistake. And we, We've, we've taken international relations and turned it into our analytical conceptual frame when it's actually, for me, a descriptor of something that's happened for a particular phase in the history of world politics. So I like world politics. Great. I'm not sure I like transnational, though, because I mean, I think transnational still oddly slips back into the national frame. Um, it, it, because although it's transnational, it's still using the national as the reference point and saying, and, and saying you know, we're, 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 we're still, the national border is still the thing that we have to trans. Um, so I'm, 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 I mean, by alternative, it's not much better, or at least it's, well, it may be analytically better, but it's not very tasteful, um, which is to talk in terms of transscalar, transscalar relations, in the sense that my, my, my thought is, what we, what we have in world politics is different scales of activity, different spaces of activity, be they local, national, regional, global, and you talk about this as this interplay of these different, and, I and again, I like that, but again, to move from talking about the interplay of local, national, regional, global, and then talk about that as transnational, that seems to me not to allow for the possibilities that, of the local global is the transaction, and the regional local, and the national global, and all the different possibilities of interplays across different scales. So I'm, I'm prone now to talk about transscalarity, which is a very uncomfortable, very unpleasant sounding, but I think it may actually analytically, conceptually work better for what it's worth. Um, okay, so uh, uh, another point which comes up in your book so much, and, and, not, and you kind of alluded to it here, you don't fall into this trap of states versus transnationalism, if I allow the term transnationalism for a moment. But you say states within transnationalism and states woven in. And that's wonderful because at the time that we were first met, the whole debate was the end of the state and all that sort of thing. And then it's happily long, 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 at least for us, uh, behind us. So that, 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 that's, uh, that's, that's great. You also talk about global governance as more than intergovernmentalism, which is, I think, also suitable very much for today's, uh, today's world. Governance of global affairs is about private global governance, it's about multi-stakeholder arrangements, it's about interregionalism, it's about translocal networks, it's about transgovernmental networks, which you talk about a lot in the book, um, as well as that old multilateralism of intergovernmental institutions, which is fine, that's also still important, but global governance is so much more. So we're, we're on the same page as far as that's concerned, and we're on the same page about the importance of recognizing complex identities in contemporary world politics. You talked about diasporas, um, but uh, the other identities and things come up in your book a lot. Uh, that ways of being, ways of becoming, ways of belonging in world politics today are so much more complex than the nation state country sort of focus. So on all of that, all of that we agree, and actually you know, I could just kind of go on and say wonderful. Um, but I'm not supposed to say wonderful. Um, so I mean, a couple of couple of points to 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 to, to, to trigger some 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 thoughts and debate here. Um, one is uh, the book. You didn't use the word here, but the 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 word is all over your book. Structuration. And I like the notion of structuration too. So I'm actually starting by agreeing with you. Um, this idea that somehow there is a complex co-constitution of 
social forces related to actors and social forces related to deeper structures, which are mutually constituting one another in some way. And that we don't understand world politics adequately, either by looking only at the actors and their interactions, or only in terms of some structurally determining force or forces. That it's a complex interplay amongst them. And I like that. The word structuration is probably a bit like kind of scalar, but except I didn't make that one up. Um, but I think it's a good word. But in reading your book and listening to you here too, it sounds a bit actor-centric. I don't know whether I don't know where the structures are, um, and I'm not sure what the structures are. Um, so is it really a structuration account? Um, I see all the actors that are identified, but I don't see the structural forces that are shaping the actors and the and the actors uh, uh, what what the interplay is there exactly. So um, it does seem to me. Talked about human agency is the crucial independent variable, and you talked about actor-led change, and those those statements don't strike me as being totally reconcilable with, with structuration as I understand it. But that's for something we can we can we can debate here. Um, so I I do have a question about the nature um, and role of structure in world politics and in the explanations of world politics. Um, I mean, this is just a big question, isn't it? This is why it's nice when you respond them because you just say, "Why didn't you think of this?" Um, as it, without having the obligation to give an account. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm not proposing to, to be able to, to figure that out here, but um, it does seem to me, you know, that the main theories of international relations and world politics have their account of structure. Marxists have their account of structure. Post-structuralists, although they post-structuralists, they have account of structure um, in, in sort of knowledge structures and epistemic structures and so on. Um, we. Feminists have their account of structure. Neorealists have their account of structure. So if you don't have a full account of structure, but you've got lots of actors, are you actually liberal international theory? So that it's really about actors and their interactions, actors in complex uh, arrays of collaboration and conflict, complex bargaining patterns as they pursue their respective interests. That sounds like liberal theory to me. There's nothing wrong with it, but then, uh, then I'd probably call myself that. Um, I mean, critical liberal, but that seems to be kind of where it is. Um, okay, so, uh, and then you, say, you, you, you said, and I agree with you actually, that you're not entitled to, I'm not in political economy, this is about world politics in general, but you and my roots are in political economy. Um, yours perhaps a bit more than mine. Um, and I find that with time I go further away from that. I don't know about you, and you, you have also, but maybe I've gone a bit further. Um, and that's not saying good or bad, but just the description of the situation. Um, political economy for me is always economy is the noun, political is the adjective, and so it, it speaks of a kind of economism to me, in a way. And that might be right. It might be right, but it, but it, is, a, but it is a particular supposition. And it seems to me that, uh, that always then um, the cultural dimensions, the psychological dimensions, the ecological dimensions, some of the sociological kind of dimensions are rather put into a second tier of causal importance. Um, and I only ask whether that's necessarily the case. Because I think sometimes in international political economy we can be so busy talking about the different perspectives within IPE 
that we also can forget that there are other ways to do world politics besides political economy. Um, and I'm not sure whether we shouldn't be talking to the anthropologists and their studies of culture, and the social psychologists and their studies of identity, and the historians with their accounts, the interesting historians, not the ones that go to the archives and just give you dates and places, but the historians that, that talk about structures of time and, and so on. Um, and sociologists with their wider notions of uh, social structure, ecological theories that take us away from an anthropocentrism and so on. I mean, isn't there a lot of study of world politics that we would go um, in those directions as well? Um, last thing. I know that you don't intend this in any way, and maybe you don't, but I'll ask the question anyway, because I think we always should ask the question. Knowledge for whom? Um, this account of world politics, who is it for? Uh, not just in terms of it's for an academic audience, but I mean, always, I'm always asking the question, you know, what are the implications of this knowledge for concrete social relations? Because I do think there's, there's relationships between knowledge and social relations, social realities in general. Um, and that raises all kinds of questions about the power relations between that knowledge. And then, and then also, who actually benefits from this knowledge? Would it be fair to say that this is an account of world politics which does arise from global Northish OECD kind of experiences? And if one took this book and laid it to our colleagues in Uganda, Bangladesh, St. Kitts Nevis or whatever, and said, this is your world, would they recognize it? Maybe they would. But I'm, 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 I just, I, just I, I wonder, and I, I just asked the question. Um, this book, too, and, and it's true of most of our work, and it's actually true of my own work in many, in many ways, too, so I'm, I'm criticizing myself here, too, but it's looking, uh, looking ahead to the kind of world politics that we'll study in the, in the coming decades. Can we afford to remain silent on the culture question? Um, the cultural context and the life worlds that different people bring to world politics. We're kind of assuming here that everyone has the same understanding of what politics means and how you do politics and so on and so forth. Um, and I'm not sure that that's the case. And, 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 and do we have to be a bit more careful? Let me give you one example. Um, we've had the, we've had the uh, events in Egypt recently. And um, uh, you know, we've had the account that's given to us by the BBC and, the, and CNN and the, the newspapers and so on. And it's been very sort of interesting and gripping and so on and so forth. Um, one of my, my Egyptian colleague on the Building Global Democracy program lives around the corner from Tahrir Square. Um, she's, an, she's also an Islamist. Um, uh, and very tolerable. Yeah, <laughs> um, but 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 I, like, I mean, we had all the blockages of the phones, and and, the, and the, I was trying to get her by 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 the email. Everything was blocked. Trying to text her and everything else. And then after a certain moment, the the, the phone, direct phone lines actually went open, and so I was able to get her on the phone. And she stuck her mobile outside and she said, "Listen, listen." Um, but then she said, you know, then her her expression. Then she said, "They're martyrs. They're martyrs." They're dying in their blood, and they're being carried through the through the square. In their and they're not being their bodies are not being cleansed. They're not being put in the white sheets in the normal Islamic Muslim burial. No, they're martyrs. They're taken through the streets in their blood, and then they're buried in the blood of their in the blood of their sacrifice. 
That's not what CNN was telling me. Um, anyway, it's just a small example, and I have to say I'm not sure that when we study world politics, we don't need to be a little bit more careful with the notion that it actually might be understood in very different ways. And especially as we move into new power alignments in world politics in the, in the, coming, in the coming decades, where it's not going to be necessarily West and the rest in a hierarchical kind of arrangement. And maybe we're going to have to deal with transculturality in our studies of world politics as much as our practices of world politics. And I'd be very interested to see what kind of uh, world politics emerge in consequence. Um, but that's something to keep with Thank you. Thanks very much, Jan. Clearly, I'm, I'm going to give Phil the chance to uh, to respond to Yana before I throw it open to the rest of the audience, uh, because we do have a good a good swath of time. Um, and as I was sitting there listening, I actually felt very comfortable with it, because it's a kind of a a view of the study of world politics that I feel comfortable with. But what struck me was not who was in the room, uh, and even Yana Artin is brave attempt for product differentiation and, and critique there, recognizing that there are more similarities than differences. I was thinking, what about those people who really wouldn't get with the, the Cerny view of the world? And so, I mean, by way of a kind of a series of questions for you to, okay. to think about when you respond to, to, to Jan Arndt, and to give them space that probably, in an intellectual sense, many of us wouldn't give space to. I mean, supposing, for example, I don't know. Sam Huntington was sitting up there. Um, Ken Waltz was sitting there. God forbid members of the English school were sitting there. These people who do think of themselves as international relations people. Uh, what do you think they think about your view of the, the nature of world politics in the, the 21st century? Given that I suspect that a lot of people in this room given their, their Warwick environment and their other backgrounds and why they choose to be in a place like this, are actually quite comfortable with your your overall remit and agenda. What about those people who would be spiky and say, I'm not... So maybe what, what, as you respond to Jan Art, you might want to think about what what antagonists as opposed to what protagonists might think about. <laughs> so take a couple of minutes to do that, and then sure. we'll, we'll open it up to, to the audience. Well, I'm not going to say a great deal, because I'm very pleased that Jana sort of agrees with a lot of what I say, not everything. Um, I must admit that, with, that uh, earlier this afternoon, when I was listening to him talking a bit about his forthcoming book, I thought there was a tremendous amount of, not, it's not we're not saying the same things, but we're saying things that talk to each other, I think, in, in very useful ways. A book called Building Global Democracy, with a question mark. Um, Publishers don't like that. <laughs> no, it was, it was actually a struggle. But. <laughs> and I like your, comment about, your comments about things like complex identities. I think transnational and multinodal are very similar in the ways they work out. As far as structuration goes, I sort of agree with you, but I actually I do think that the actors are more important now because partly because of the nature of the structures. Because industrial flexibilization because of um, uh, because of the internet and the you know the, the, the level of international communications, the fact that that people um, are able to you know, have a kind of global consciousness of what's happening elsewhere, 
um, obviously mainly in the north, but uh, certainly across across uh, North Africa at the moment. Um, so it does seem it seems to me that you know the fluidity of the of the structures that have emerged with globalization, especially not just economic structures, but also the political and, and social and cultural structures. These kinds of structures are, the, well, another phrase uh, Jim Rosenau talks about fragmentation. You have a fragmentation, and it's like localization in some ways. You have a fragmentation of action, but also bringing it together in what I would, what I call them. Now, by the way, you'll have to excuse me because in the book. I coined the phrase in French because Michel Foucault writes about how governmentality is about different forms of raison d'etat, reason of state. And I argue that uh, today people are so aware of what's going on in other places that there's a raison du monde or a global or world consciousness uh, emerging, a world awareness perhaps. Not always, a, not always a conscious consciousness, but it's almost a kind of common unconscious that you know that something is happening. <coughs> So I do think that there are new possibilities for actors, and I think what actors do to um, you push on the structuration process is actually crucial at the moment. And it's, it's enabled by structural changes to, to a large extent, but it's also then opened up the situation. Permissive conditions, as we used to say in, in, in social sciences, creating permissive conditions for change. Um, am I, I, I don't think in the sense that I'm uh, subordinating social, political, anthropological, or historical elements, I think I'm actually saying that that they actually do come in in very complex ways, and that it's absolutely crucial to understand why you don't have the same kind of um, you know, single kind of economic uh, uh, set of set of dominant structures the way you did in the Second Industrial Revolution. So I think that actually again opens the way for all these other all these other dimensions, all these other variables to operate. Am I a critical liberal? Actually, I would I would admit, although some people might want to attack me on this, and I'm surprised you didn't mention it because it's in one of my chapters, I would regard myself as a critical neoliberal. In other words, it does seem to me and the the, the chapter actually comes out of the paper, I, I think I once gave here a long time ago. Uh, called Mapping Varieties of Neoliberalism, which has gone through several phases and is a chapter in the book, uh, to say that neoliberalism isn't just all of the piece. Neoliberalism is a variety of different kinds of uh, elements, policy elements and structural elements, which can be put together by people in different ways. And if you look, for example, if we're talking about developing countries, you look, for example, as well as what, what's been happening over the past 15 years in Brazil, it seems to me that there is there has emerged a kind of social neoliberal model, and that in many areas there's, there's almost uh, um, what I would call a managed neoliberal model, which is what people like in my view Hadrian Chan are talking about. So I think neoliberalism opens the way again because it's a highly flexible, um, in a sense, paradigm or or, ide or ideological paradigm. So I would regard myself as a critical neoliberal, and I agree complex bargaining processes are crucial. Knowledge for whom? Well, of course, I, wrote, I was writing for other academics. That's what we do. Uh, but I think in the long run, if it takes off within the academy, 
Uh, it will have spillovers in the way that you know, Kenneth Waltz was writing for the Academy. But look at the policy spillovers that had in the 1980s, especially with the coming of Reaganism and Thatcherism and all that sort of thing. Um, and for whose benefit? Well, I think actually what I'm saying, if I want to put a, a sort of ideological spin on it, I would say that I'm writing this for actors to make those actors conscious of the fact that they are part of the structuration process. A lot of them know it, but I think a lot of them don't really do it consciously. To say, you go out there, and I, I gave a talk actually to the graduating uh, seniors at Rutgers last, Rutgers Newark last year, and I said, you're the ones who are going to go out there into various kinds of business positions, government positions, the media, whatever, and you're going to say that actors, and you're, you're going to be part of this process, pushing, pushing the structuration process forward. Um, I'm not sure about the martyr thing. I think that's extremely important, or the co that, that kind of, you know, the bringing in of traditional cultures. Um, I'm highly critical of uh, Huntington, of course. Um, but what I would say is that I agree with the kind of Western view that, this, that a lot of this is about, and in the context of, what, of everything else I've been saying, what as I Stevenson so famously called in 1953, the revolution of rising expectations. That, um, again, talking about actors. There are all these people who, who, who especially, you know, all, all this, like Rula Kalaf in the, in the Financial Times talking about the importance of youth in North Africa. But there are people who are becoming more educated because the education systems are expanding. Uh, they're looking for jobs through, um, the knowledge sector, you might say. They feel that they, I mean, after all, look at, look at the guys that ran the, the, the planes into the World Trade Center. They were all trained, middle class people, upwardly mobile, who didn't see the possibility of getting the kinds of jobs that they wanted. I know the revolution of rising expectations concept has been applied to things like the French Revolution, but I think it's absolutely crucial here. And yes, there may be parts of the world where that doesn't apply because uh, things are so desperate still in the, the very poorest parts of the world. But I think in the places where change is taking place, especially uh, places that are moving towards um, economic modernization, communications modernization, social and political openness, I think there is a movement in that direction. And it's, uh, I'm quite happy to be part, if I am, part of the process of trying to, to make those people a little bit more conscious of their possibilities. I wonder what, what's going to happen in China, for example. I think that the current policies of clamping down on dissent are going to be counterproductive in the medium term uh, in this kind of process. Um, I'm not sure what the English school people say. I was talking to Barry Kazan a couple of weeks ago, and he seemed to think that, you know, this is moderately compatible with some of the English school stuff. Um, I certainly don't oh, think that's Kenneth a problem. Waltz, hmm? That's a worry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I certainly don't think Kenneth Waltz would agree with me. Um, he thinks the state, uh, the nation state, is actually at the, at the source of, uh, of all progress. You know, the welfare state, uh, economic development. So he's like the people, you know, in, at the end of the Second World War, uh, who thought, yes, or especially, for example, in national liberation movements, thought if you have a modern nation state, you'll get a modern, prosperous nation out of it. 
Um, I don't think that's true. So Kenneth Watts and I would disagree very strongly on a whole series of issues. Um, and Samuel Huntington, well, I just think Samuel Huntington's got it wrong in one way. He has an equally sort of monistic view of what cultures are. The, cult, the clash of civilizations, these are big civilizations. Well, in my view, the clashes that are going on now are clashes within Islam or within Christianity and cutting across them and being affected by what I was just talking about earlier. There were things like the revolution of rising expectations. And of course, yes, there's cultural elements that are brought in and people fight, for example, sometimes um, uh, around the concept of you know being martyrs or, or, or fighting for for um, a particular kind of uh, supernatural uh, viewpoint or whatever. But it seems to me that the triggers are these forms of um, economic, political, social modernization. I think we, and, and in that sense, maybe I am a little bit northish, as as Bernard uh, said. Uh, Miles Taylor, by the way, in his review of this book uh, a couple of months ago in uh, Perspectives on Politics, accuses me of having uh, a much more, much too Europeanist uh, perspective on the world. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, I think when I look at places like Brazil and India, no. Okay, so, so thanks. Uh, you're going to get plenty more bites of the cherry, but let's uh, try and. That's enough for now, yeah. Yeah, let's try and give you a bit of a, of a say. I'll take two or three uh, questions, comments, and then uh, then I'll let uh, Phil come, come back at you. I've got Mike, and then Brigitte, and then uh, the guy behind uh, Brigitte. I should say that we have in the audience uh, Brigitte Young from Munster here, a uh, very eminent uh, political economist uh, from Germany. So, uh, Mike, you first. Okay, um, I've read the first two parts of the book. You, you mentioned the current governmentality. Thing. Yes. And one of the debates is you obviously try to distance yourself from institutionalists and using Foucault's ideas of governmentality. But I do find it's difficult to kind of envisage that at the global level we've got these people inside global institutions kind of managing the institutional constraints and the opportunities. I note that. Foucault is a neo-Nietzsche, and Nietzsche has a theory of the Ubermensch. Is that the only person for whom the agency that you're referring to is actually possible? The other question there was what about the bargaining power of actors. So I would just say, and I haven't read your chapter on Marxism at the back there, about Leslie Sclair's theory of the transnational capital class. Why would one of these neo-Marxists disagree with you? They'd agree with everything you say, but the only people with the bargaining power and the resources to effectively operate are the transnational capitalist class. Um, that Yeah, um, Phil, I've not, I have admit, I've not read your book, but the expression I have is on the role of the state, um, and particularly the concept of sovereignty. Because if we talk about up to about 1990, we really talk about this absolute sovereignty, non-interference. And it seems much more in terms of what we are now. is is a kind of um, responsible sovereignty, what in fact Kofi Annan 2004 at the UN introduced, meaning that the state is really responsible also, his responsibility, 
what is happening in terms of the impact of its action on other states and how that is being renegotiated. And so I wonder if you address that in your book, the reconceptualization about the sovereignty. Thanks a lot for the presentation. I just want to pick up on uh, your first point. So you started by saying uh, there was a certain weakness in the concept of the level of analysis. That people, scholars think, okay, we have the national level and the international level. It's two different things. And then after uh, your very interesting explanation, uh, you come to the conclusion um, that the two levels um, actually able to be analyzed in a, in a similar much more similar sense than those scholars have been doing so far. Maybe you can explain that again in quite in short terms. Or also, you mentioned that this is something in the making. So the two levels are analytically being coming together. But maybe just give some examples on that. Take one more, and then I'll go. Later. It's a bit similar, perhaps, to the previous person asking a question. And it's a bit provocative. It's to both speakers. Sorry? Um, it's to both speakers. So why word politics? So on the one hand, I completely buy into this kind of international relations, this kind of like very arbitrary construct and so on. But isn't it just what we think in politics? And is Bertrand also kind of creating some kind of arbitrary level of aloofness that you so want? It's just about politics. Why the world? Okay. We'll search for problem differentiation. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Go for it. Um, so I, I was, because it was the first question, what did you say about Foucault governmentality again? Well, you kind of in your chapter, you put this image forward based on Foucault's ideas of governmentality, mm -hmm. that you have these people in the institutionalized sector managing the structural constraints and the opportunities in a kind of on a global oh, this, is the, this, is the, this is the chapter on global governance. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And I was just suggesting, well, can you really imagine somebody really sitting there doing any of those things? Who either isn't Ubermensch or doesn't have the power of transnational capital behind them? Well, I think this is where, in a sense, I don't know whether I'm, I'm changing the, you know, shifting the, the, the goalposts here, but that's where the concept of neopluralism comes in. Because neopluralism is, in my view, uh, a rather sensible and practical intermediate um, uh, position between traditional nice-nice American pluralism, which was sort of like you've got in democracy, you've got a political marketplace, and, and you know we know that representative government doesn't really represent people that well, but if you open the way for all these interest groups to operate, then you'll have something a little bit like real democracy, because they all counteract each other. You know, and the, and the Marxists who say, well, no, they all combine together in, in this uh, you know, monistic uh, capitalist class system with a hegemonic ruling class that you know, uh, always, acts in, always acts together. And then, of course, you've got all these things in the middle. I mean, the Marxists, Mark even Marx, some would say that the 18th and the early other part uh, kind of changes a lot, a lot of what people assume about Marxism in the class structure and then brings in the role of the state in that kind of context. Um, but what I like about neopluralism is two things. First of all, it says, yes, there are a lot of inequalities. But second, it says that the people who benefit from these inequalities often disagree with each other and fight with each other. It's not as if they're imposing a single um, 
a single set of policy outcomes on everybody. And that's, you know, some people would say they are. Neoliberalism that's seen by, by some uh, by people like the economy, for example, is, is a much more monolithic uh, sort of structure. But um, I think neoliberalism is good because it, it opens the way to see why sometimes highly conflictual bargaining processes. Not and bargaining is perhaps an even too nice word for it. Uh, it's conflict and competition over policy outcomes. And the second, the second dimension, of course, is the, is the issue of the dimension. So that would be my comment. And I suppose that covers my comment, would co cover my uh, approach to Marxism as well. I mean, in terms of my treatment of the Marxist theorists in the chapter on Marxism, which is based on sort of uh, Gramsci, Polensis, and, and Jessup. I basically say that each one of them adds a new dimension to actually the pluralization of Marxism. And that's why, you know, that, that's why their analyses actually do actually make, you know, progress Marxism along because they're actually making it much closer to neoliberalism. That's, you know, that's what I've got to say. Role of the state, sovereignty. Yes, responsible sovereignty. I haven't heard that phrase before, but I'd, I'd stay away from the concept of sovereignty for the most part, because I think that sovereignty uh, has been seen as something much more monolithic than it really, than it really is. But does the world work, world politics, if we stay with the concept of absolute sovereignty, that everybody just looks like in Europe right now, the euro crisis, Germany just looks at its national mm -hmm. interest of finance. I think we're getting... That's not sovereignty. So, that, sovereignty is about actually having some sort of effective rule within a state. I mean, I look, look at Greece. Which means it's really, I mean, I would say that what's happening in Greece now is is, is, a, is a threat to the concept of sovereignty. What's happening in Ireland now is a threat to the concept and how, it, how, how the, the kinds of negotiations are about the European Stability Fund, etc., or the Financial Stability Fund, are about movements away from sovereignty. Yes, of course, you can say there's something called pooled sovereignty, for example, that some people are talking about. But pooled sovereignty is not sovereignty. The states are just uh, particular substructures within a wider world structure, uh, which you know have certain roles to play. State actors have very important roles to play in this context. Um, but the states, and I, I think this this goes on to, to another point, which is that the states. I mean, if you look at my concept of the competition state, which, as you know, I've been publishing stuff on for. 25 years, um, the concept of the competition state is that the role of the state today is actually to operationalize globalization. The role of the state is not to do something separate, except, except in terms of buying off certain kinds of domestic interest groups and political parties from time to time. But the state is there to make sure that economic and political and social activities that take place on their territory are compatible with and competitive with what goes on in the rest of the world. Is that sovereignty? I don't think so. And yet, it does, it does involve a certain amount of institutional, institutional effectiveness. Um, levels of analysis, well, on, on levels of analysis, I would have thought that I would make the same comment, basically. That um, you don't have the distinction, in a sense, between the states as, as human actors, in particular, the waltz Talks about states are both <coughs> fragmented and, and also integrated more widely into various kinds of transnational 
I still like the word transnational, um, a world or trans something or other political processes. States are very important, but in some ways it's not the state that's important, it's the bits of the state. And the bits of the state in a world context, that's, that's you know, slaughter's transgovernmental networks, that's absolutely crucial here. And the bits of the state, you know, the, the, the debate that has started in the United States about the role of the, of the military, the role of defense policy, and whether the United States can actually still think of itself as having any possibility for intervening successfully in other parts of the world where every time they come in, you know, they find a, a new uh, you know, improvised explosive device to meet them. Um, and, and, you know, domestic uh, hostility, <coughs> even from people who sort of agree with a democratization process because they don't want outsiders coming in to do that. And that's not outsiders necessarily in the nation states and in a localized sense. So I do think that, you know, if we talk about issue areas, and we see them in a transnational world, transcultural, whatever context, um, state, state actors have a role to play. States are still crucially important because this is just an emerging process. That's how I, that's how I square the circle here, but it's an emerging process. Um, and of course, most of the formal legal side is still supportive of states, but I think it's moving away from that. Um, and I guess that fits with wide world politics as well, because if you just, I, I, of course I agree with you, it's just politics. But it's different from what international politics was originally said, well, not originally, but it's been said to be in the last couple of centuries, or especially since international relations emerged as an area of, of academic attention at the end of the 19th century or at the end of the 20th century. So I call it world politics. Too. Not to say that it's not about local politics, or not about the middle levels, but it encompasses those levels. Okay. I'm going to give you a chance to yeah. pick up in a minute, but I want to give people in the audience a chance to, assuming they want to. Um, go one there, and then one at the back, and then Matt. These are questions for Jan Art. Right? No, no, these are for you. <laughs> oh, they're for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Darn. He, he gets to go out there. Uh, so go for it. Sure. No, no, no. I figured someone else before you. You're second. Who put the hand up? Just there. Yeah, you can wave there. Oh, sorry, Jamila. Yeah, Jamila. My eyes are not sorry. We're all getting old. So I want to start from this direction. world is like very complex place. And then if we, we have like globalization and transnationality and complex identities. And so my question is like, um, if we picture world as even more complex, like where do we move from there? Because like, I, I would say that like international relations, like possibly the competitive advantage of it is that in many aspects, it tries to present things like as more simple. So we have this maybe some monolithic kind of vision, but doesn't it help us to explain or understand the world better, which is already very complex? Okay. Yeah. Basically, why haven't you got a model? Like, <laughs> uh, at the back, 
And then Matt. This is actually to either of the speakers. Um, so both, I think, agree with the, uh, uh, the proposition that culture is important. But I, I'm, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that culture <laughs> is important at all. I mean, I, I, would, I, I want to hear why you think uh, culture is particularly important in, in, in political lives. Yeah, we're going to take one more. Take one more. Okay. Yeah. Hey, no, Professor Watson. Oh, thank you very much. Um, Phil, let me take you back to one of the early things you said. Mm -hmm. You described the state as being an unfinished project out of the collapse of feudalism. Yeah. Um, this was very interesting. Uh, as you know, I spend a lot of my time blowing the dust off very old books and reading Enlightenment scholars on similar processes. Yeah, I guess I'm as well. <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, and they try to historicize the birth or the preemption of capitalism as exactly the same process. Um, so the uh, demise of feudalism uh, creates both political and economic effects in that respect. Um, that there's um, an historical co-constitution in the minds of the early Enlightenment scholars uh, between uh, the state, the emergence of the state, and capitalism, the emergence of capitalism. But of course they uh, they differ in terms of uh, the relationship that they posit between the two. Uh, and so I was, I was going to ask you uh, a bit about the relationship, looking at it uh, in historical terms. Um, the French Enlightenment scholars, of course, seem to want to depict uh, capitalism as an institution of the state, whereas the Scottish Enlightenment scholars want to depict the state as some sort of institution of capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, in your answer to the last round of questions, you <coughs> referred back to your state work, um, where you suggest that the state, I think you said, um, its role was now to uh, operationalise globalisation, which would suggest that um, the Scots, um, certainly uh, looking forward to the present day, the Scots had it more right than French Enlightenment scholars uh, in that respect, that, uh, that, that capitalism is an institution. But here's the plan. You take the first question and the third question. And we'll let Jan Art, since he's invented the word transculturality, take the take the question. question. Oh, Sorry? Can Matt finish his question? I thought he had finished his question. Um, yeah, I, I'd almost finished. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Matt, I thought you'd finished. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't have breathed. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell that on plenty, but stop doing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so your competition state analysis seems to uh, to privilege the. As long as it's, email. Uh, <laughs> it's all the interruptions I have to put. <laughs> uh, seems to prioritise the Scots version over the French version. Uh, but of course, again, in your own work, you say that the competition state is an evolving form of the state that emerges out of something that was previously there before that. Um, so is it the evolution? to that position in which uh, the state becomes an institution of capitalism and not the other way around. And is that a distinctively uh, recent process? It's oh, okay. Um, well, first of all, um, where to? And all I can say is that in everything I've written since 19, or published since 1996, um, I've outlined three possible scenarios of where to. And one is the 
David Held, I should mention him these days. Um, <laughs> David Held view that, that we're working towards a kind of rule of law, cosmopolitan democracy as a result of all these changes. The second is sort of not exactly a Marxist, but it could include a Marxist view that we're working towards um, what I would call uh, sectional or sectoral hegemony. In other words, in particular, and I think this is particularly important today, uh, whether, whether the, 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 the global financial system is somehow you know, uh, exerting uh, some increasing power to, to override what you know, this, this political process, this emerging political process. And the third is what, and as you probably know, because I, I also, it's also a term that I decided not to use very much in the book, but one that I've, one that I've written a lot about. I didn't invent it, of course. Um, I believe Henry Bullard invented it. Neo-medievalism. That we're actually in a, going, going to a world which looks more like a kind of extension of a world of, you know, of competing institutions with overlapping jurisdictions and complex semi-hierarchical but fluid political processes going on within, as you would have seen in a sort of ideal type imagined medieval world, but at you know, global level. Um, and I, I would say, you know, how I get out of this one is by saying that it depends on what actors do and what kinds of decisions are made, what kinds of coalitions are built across borders, whether you will end up with one or another of those three scenarios. And I'm not one of these people who is going to predict a particular outcome because I think the situation is sufficiently fluid so that it could be any one of those three. Um, and that's why culture is important as well. Um, the state as an unfinished pro project, what's the relationship between the co-constitution of state and capitalism? Well, I suppose I do. I'm a Scottish Enlightenment guy. You know, I mean, I, I do believe in the co-constitution. I believe in, uh, I don't believe in it as a faith, you know, but I, I understand it through the, through the lens, particularly the way that, that, um, that Foucault has, for example, uh, described uh, the Scottish Enlightenment, and the way Arthur Herman describes the Scottish Enlightenment, um, as seeing modernity as being about the co-constitution of individuation and totalization. Totalization, you know, Saint-Simon's view about the administration of things that Weber took on, you know, big bureaucracies, etc. And the notion of individualism and rights and democracy and those sorts of things. And according to, according to Foucault, uh, reading uh, a number of, and, and Herman reading a number of uh, the writers of the Scottish Enlightenment suggests that was why why Foucault calls governmentality an art. Because the, the art of governmentality means that that um, political actors, and this gets it's, uh, to some extent back to the question somebody asked earlier about about specific actors, that political actors are continually trying to navigate various kinds of compromises between individuation and globalization. And that's what modernity is about. Modernity is about this kind of ongoing for a constitution. And that's where, and um, uh, that's the basis of speculation. I don't know if that answers the question. But Just on the same point, again, I mean, Foucault, yeah. though, he imagines that at the level of the state, which is why yes. you go from raison yes. to raison de non. But again, right. the question is, we can imagine that at the level of the state. To imagine that at the level of the world requires something 
Well, I think, yeah, but I think because it's, it's harder and harder for, for the nation state actors to do that within some, within some sort of ideally isolated or autonomous nation state. That's back to the argument about sovereignty. Uh, and one of the things I like about the Kopkin book about tribes that I talked about earlier, but, uh, the, the studies of the, of the Scottish Enlightenment suggest that the combination of British imperialism, which, by the way, was carried out primarily by Scots on the ground, um, rather, rather than the English, um, and of course the Irish as well, um, that British imperialism followed by American informal imperialism in the world, uh, the, the American search for hegemony. Actually, both of those countries are the legacies, legatees, I mean, of the Scottish Enlightenment, and have, um, you know, embedded those values, at least in the North, and possibly in many other places as well. Does that answer your question, Matt? Yeah, that's one for me, Okay, uh, <laughs> Yana, do you want to have a pop at yeah. Well, well, and anything else you want? Anything else? Yeah. No, just in this point about politics. I think, I think that um, I think you're right. And in principle, I would say yes, politics. And I was reflecting that what's interesting is that the work politics NA nowadays tends to include a number of people who are dealing with more world beyond the state things as well as the international. And so, but that's a slow movement, and I'm not sure we're there yet. And I think if you go into general public and you say politics, people relate to the imaginary of the country, nation, state, construction of society. So I agree with you in principle, but as a tactic of communicating understanding, I'm not sure that it would work with most people. Um, there's more room for agency given the nature of structure today. I just don't know. Any of you tried to do production in a non-capitalist way recently? <laughs> or any of you tried to make authoritative knowledge claims outside a modern rationalist frame of thought? How much room is there? I don't know. I don't know. Those seem to be pretty powerful structures to me. Um, and I always, I always think too when I when I when I think of these things. I, a number of years ago, I met um, with Zubeda Wambade. You've never heard of Zubeda Wambade, and I probably would never have either, but I was doing some field work in, in eastern Uganda. And Zubeda Wambade was, was rural. She was uh, Ugandan. She was Muslim. She was a woman. She was a peasant. She was an advocate for the mentally ill. And basically, <laughs> take any hierarchy around, and she was on the wrong end of it. Um, and then from her, she related to be a, 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 a or paraphrased the Swahili proverb to the effect of, you know, we're the, we're the grass that the elephants stamp on, no one hears our voice. I think, I also, I always ask myself when I think about agency and all this great capacity for doing things, and I always ask myself the Zubeda Wambade question, which is, you know, how much, how much scope? And once Zubeda Wambade has got lots of agency, then I'll, then I'll, then I'll relax a little bit on structural power. Um, but I don't think we're there yet. Culture. I mean, I, maybe I should say what I understand by culture. By, by culture, I understand the construction, communication, and enactment of knowledge. Yeah. And it seems to me that if you want to understand economics, which I understand as the production, distribution, and consumption of resources, I don't see how you can understand the production, 
distribution and consumption of resources without understanding the processes of constructing, communicating, and enacting knowledge that are part of that. There is no economy outside of culture. And so I don't see how you can do that. And likewise, in terms of politics, if you understand politics, as I would do, um, as you know, the, the acquisition, allocation, and exercise of social power, then again, I don't understand how you can, I mean, power is a cultural construction. How you acquire power is a cultural construction. How you exercise it is a cultural construction, etc. So I just don't think we can make political economy a cultural result. It makes it harder for us. It makes it more complicated, it makes it a more difficult study because we have to take in a lot of things that most of us doing political economy haven't trained ourselves to do. Um, but, I, but, I, but I don't think that's a reason not to do it. And by the same token, I do, I would say, let's first try to do research in a different way that gives, gives full voice to different cultures, regions, etc., and then come to the conclusion that it's all, it's all headed to the West. Because that's the thing that we, that, are, that, that we do in this building global democracy program. We do something that is actually not done in academic research practically anyway. That is, we assemble around the table people from 10 world regions in equal measure. And we don't take people from, from Africa who were educated at Harvard. Although sometimes that, 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 does, that does happen. But we take people that are from the regions working at the universities. I mean, they're academics, they're scholars, they're our, they're our colleagues. Um, and you bring them in equal numbers. And then you have an interaction and then you see what comes up. And I tell you that when we had a when we had a, when we had a discussion in those terms on what does global democracy mean, for example, it was miles away from cosmopolitan democracy, a la held, yeah. but it was also miles away from intergovernmentalism, a la Moravchik. Absolutely, it was somewhere else. And I think that's just that's the kind of knowledge we come <laughs> and, and in loosely called Western academia, we are not generally that open to this. Let me give you one last anecdote. I tried to put together a building global democracy program a panel for the International Studies Association conference next week in Montreal. I have put together, I've been part of 30 panels over the last 15 years to the International Studies Association. They have all been accepted. But when I put together a panel with leading scholars from Cairo University, University of the West Indies, uh, the East-West Center, back from Tonga, um, and uh, uh, Tsinghua University of uh, China, suddenly got rejected. Now, and we and back and forth, and I, and I also I just raised the question with the, with the organizers. You know what's what's going on here? But this, I mean, I know I've been part of the organizing committees for these things. I know what's a good panel. I know what's a good. And this was this met all the criteria. Um, and we went back once, back and forth twice, and finally on the third exchange, I said, you know. Sometimes we posit something called structural power and makes us do things that we don't actually realize and don't really intend. It's all the program. It's <laughs> your structural power. I think, I think you're very lucky in that context because they still think of themselves as the American International Studies Center. I just want to say very uh, I'm going to give you the last word. No, no, no. I'm going to give you because okay. it's 7 o'clock and we're due to finish. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I wouldn't dream of not giving you the last word. Uh, yeah, right. I want to give you the last word, but also do it by way of a, of, of a question that okay. I'd like you to address. You said very interestingly, I wrote the book for academics. Yeah. Not all academics write for academics. 
And as you also pointed out, occasionally, what academics write, cast policy shadows. You didn't want to be pinned down. You said that you thought that there were three potential ways of the world, including David Held's brand of cosmopolitan. Do you really believe that? That's, that's, a, separate, that, that's, that's safe, a separate question. That's Saif al Islam's view. Or Saif al Islam's view of, um, of, of So here's the question. Here's the normative question. If your work, if people decided that your work did cast a normative policy shadow, as opposed to simply right for academics, and you were asked to put your policy money where your academic sure. mouth was, what would your better world look like on the basis of, of your description of world politics? I mean, we know what David Held thinks a better world looks like, uh, whether we think he's right or wrong. He's got a view. Uh, okay. Take a couple of minutes, finish off. Yeah. And let, me, let me just say that, that I agree with, with Jan Art in the sense that my view of what culture is is an anthropological view. And I think there's some excellent, what I would call political anthropologists like John and Jean Komarov, for example, who do this kind of work, even if they do, even if they are probably going to be teaching at Harvard very soon. Uh, um, as far as my normative view, well, it's very simple. And it's there buried in the chapter on neoliberalism, and I've mentioned it here, it's what I call social neoliberalism. It's a sort of Lula view, where you, you actually accept that you have to have certain kinds of um, financial disciplines, uh, but at the same time you try to pursue uh, certain kinds of social projects like hunger uh, alleviation and that sort of thing. It means that, that these projects are, will always be to some extent limited, but they certainly be much. Uh, they also include, by the way, things like compensating losers and globalization. So I do think that there are, that there are a lot of things that can be done to things. In, in my view, they, I guess they're not really and this flows from your theory of world politics. Um, it flows from my from my theory about the role of neoliberalism in these changes as a kind of ideological ideological paradigm that is becoming embedded at a number of different levels, um, including you know in, including in a way incorporating social dimensions as well in certain contexts. I don't know if that makes sense, but. All right, well, we're going to have to finish there. It's quite clear, I think, we could go on for a long time. So let me finish by uh, two thanks and apology. Apology to Matt for not letting me finish your question, Matt. I was sure in my own mind you'd finish. Uh, thanks to Jan Hart uh, for being uh, discussant. And thanks to Phil for a, a very interesting uh, uh, demonstration of a very substantial body of scholarship that he's amassed over the years. So. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much.